The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. But it's a delight to be here. I so appreciate your pastor. I've really come to love and appreciate him over these years. And uh, his heart uh, beats uh, for the same uh, beat that God's made heart, my heart beat for. I find that the closest friends I have are the ones who have that same passion to just uh, to get to Jesus. And there are times when I, uh, when I get off that track, and I'm ashamed of it, but I'm going to tell you, that's the track we need to be on. <laughs> and I appreciate the men in the ministry that uh, uh, encourage me forward and stir me on in that particular regard. I'm looking forward to this particular conf- uh, conference. Uh, for those of you that know me, often I preach on the Holy Spirit and revival and the Spirit to life. And that'll, come, that'll just come through because it just does. <laughs> but you know, you have no access to the Spirit apart from the Word. Because life in the Spirit is the life of faith. And as was already quoted, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. So you have no access to that Spirit-filled life apart from the Word. There are people who make much of the Spirit and minimize the Word, and that leads to deception. There are others who uplift the Word and minimize the Spirit. That leads to deadness. (laughs) And what we want to see is that there is a God-ordained union of the Word and the Spirit. And that's what our text brings out in such a beautiful way. Today we're going to focus on the importance of the Word and how it gets us to the relationship And then we'll deal with some of the uh, principles of God's enduring word over these next several nights. But let's look at our text, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. The inspired text says, Now it came to pass as they went that he, Jesus, entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bitter, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. I want to speak this morning on one needful thing. The living word. Shall we pray? Lord, I pray that you would open our understanding of the connection between the written word and the living word. Oh, Lord. As we just saw this excellent video, your word is a window to the life that really counts to the relationship with you. Lord, may we see the importance of your word this day in a way that's new, fresh, perhaps even deeper, that it might take us higher in our walk with you. Do in these hours together what man cannot do. And so I plead the blood of Jesus to protect us from the attack of the enemy who hates an emphasis like we have in these days. And so, Lord Jesus, again, I claim our position in you at the throne far above all principality and power. And in your name, I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder in this hour and trust you that that not be allowed. Lord, we need a fresh glimpse of you. So, Spirit of God, would you open our eyes to see Jesus, the living word. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In the providence of God, I was born into a preacher's home, 1962. I've grown up around ministry. As far back as I can remember, I've been in ministry. Uh, Dad just kind of took us along, and we were a part of it, and uh, so forth. I surrendered to call to preach at 15, preached my first sermon at 16, head into evangelism uh, 25 years ago or 26 years ago now, and uh, so forth. But you know, even in ministry, there are tragedies. There are shipwrecks. And it's not just ministry, it's in all walks of life, but I'm talking about Christians. We've got provision. We've got an amazing reality and dynamic of a regenerated spirit that is righteous and holy, and the Holy Spirit who's moved in to lead and empower from that point. And yet often we ignore all that provision and we end up in some lapse or some escapade that brings us down and discredits the cause of Jesus Christ and kills our testimony. And friends, whenever that happens, whether it's a preacher or someone who's just been saved for years, it indicates that the one needful thing of this text somehow, somewhere, at some point began to get ignored. I want to ask you this morning, have you chosen the one needful thing? Jesus said one thing. Just one thing is absolutely needful. It's vital. It's crucial. Have we chosen this one needful thing? Now, what is this one essential matter? Our text provides for us two pictures, two contrasting pictures. They revolve around two ladies and two dear ladies. And uh, then there's an evaluation at the end of this contrast given by Jesus himself that will bring up and clarify this one needful thing. So let's begin by looking at the two pictures. We see them in verse 38 and the first part of verse 39. It says in verse 38, Now it came to pass as they went that he, Jesus, entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received, that is, welcomed him into her house and she had a sister called Mary which also in other words both of these ladies received the Lord Jesus I get this literally into their house wouldn't that be neat would you have to clean up (laughs) and perhaps more than physically and hygiene maybe some other things that you'd be ashamed of would have to get cleaned up but Here's these ladies, and they're physically welcoming Jesus into their house. Now, the indication is that prior to this occasion, they'd already welcomed Jesus into their heart. They'd already become believers in Jesus. John 1.12, but as many as received, there's our word received, but as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. They'd already believed on Jesus. They'd already received him into their heart. And friends, that's how it happens. When you understand that sin is the problem, hell is the consequence, Christ alone is the answer, and you trust him to save you, then you're receiving him. You see, salvation is not just a matter of getting you to heaven, though that's a glorious promise. Salvation's a matter of getting Jesus into you. Both of these ladies had already received Jesus. They'd already trusted him. They're already believers. They're already disciples in that sense. So the contrast here is not between an unsaved lady and a saved lady. That is not the contrast. 
It's not even the contrast between what we would typically think of as a worldly Christian versus a spiritual Christian. The contrast is between two approaches to doing right. Both of these ladies are trying to do right. But one approach is right, and one approach is actually wrong. Let's see where we find ourselves this morning as the Spirit of God takes us through this. The first picture is of Mary. In verse 39, it's a picture of fellowship, communion, relationship with Jesus. And when that's the case, the focus is on Jesus, which indicates a God or Jesus dependence. I love the specifics in verse 39. The inspired text chose to tell us, And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. It is a beautiful picture of surrender and faith. Notice her posture. She is sitting at Jesus' feet. I don't know that we get this in American culture. People from Asia and Africa get this a lot easier where they still sit at the teacher's feet. I've been in settings where all the people are not sitting in chairs like this. They're sitting on the floor and they're right around me as I'm speaking. (laughs) And uh, they're just sitting there taking it in. Sponges, okay. Uh, This is what we have here uh, with Mary. She's literally sitting at Jesus' feet. In Western culture, European, American culture, uh, we don't really do that. We sit at the table as equals to negotiate. (laughs) But you know, that's not the posture of Mary here. She's not here as an equal with Jesus to negotiate. No, she recognizes he's the the master. He's the Lord. (laughs) He's the Savior. He's the one that she's already believed in as Savior. And so she is sitting at his feet. And the point here is not so much the physical posture. It's that in her heart, there is this attitude of surrender. She is at the feet of Jesus. And whatever Jesus says, it's apparent. That's what she's going to embrace. Now, friends, is that our posture? When we come to the Word of God, whether it's in our own personal study or whether it's in a corporate setting like this through the preached Word of God, is the posture of our heart... (coughs) excuse me, sitting at Jesus' feet is the posture, absolute surrender. We sang it today. I surrender all. Is that real? That was written by Judson W. Vandeventer of Pennsylvania, whose passion was to become a famous uh, artist, and he got the, the, uh, a German teacher, and everything was going uh, that direction, and then God said, I want you to preach. <laughs> And he battled it for five years. (laughs) And finally he surrendered. And God used him for years. And later he wrote that song. that was beautifully uh, 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 articulated for us today. uh, Put in the uh, setting that uh, Hunter put it in. But friends, that song, is it real to you? I surrender. I surrender. God, whatever you say, it's a done deal. That's what I'm choosing. Or is it, God, you tell me what you think and I'll think about it. I fear we're often more at the table as equals to negotiate than we really are sitting at it. Friends, when we come to a conference like this, we've got to get in the right posture of heart. Time we come to the Word of God. Regardless of the theme, we need that right posture of heart. So here she is. She's sitting at his feet. There's that position of surrender. And then 
surrender in faith because it says, and heard his word. And we've already noted, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, the word of God gives us the warrant for trusting God. God is the object of our faith, but the warrant for that, the basis for that, the foundation of that is his word. And so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And, I, uh, and it's the term uh, rhema, which means the specific word, the words of God. You see, that forms the foundation of faith. And so she's sitting there. She's looking unto Jesus, literally. When you look unto Jesus, the author of faith, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, two, there she is. And she's literally looking at him. She's focused. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. Now, we might say, okay, she had it made. I mean, Jesus is right there in her house. He still is, friends. <laughs> you see, this written word is the window to the living word. It is the gateway. It is the passage to actually meet with the person just like they met with the person. And friends... There is a sense where for us it is more intimate, more intimate because Jesus for them was outside of them. Jesus for us is inside. If you're born again, your spirit is the nature of Almighty God implanted into you, righteous and holy. That's regeneration. That's the real you. And the spirit of Jesus moved in. He communes with us right there. And as we read this book, it's just like uh, the apostles uh, their disciples said, in our heart, burn within us. In other words, there's that communion. There's that, that reality. You know God speaking to you. The God who spoke the world into existence is speaking to you. He knows you by name. And amazingly, he loves you perfectly. <laughs> wow, that's our God. And friends, we have this privilege of communing with him. You see, it's not just a matter of reading the Bible. It's a matter of meeting with God. You can go through the motions of reading without meeting with God. Have you ever done that? Don't look so pious. <laughs> we can go through the intellectual exercise. Knock out our three chapters for the day or whatever kind of plan you're on. And miss meeting the person. And some don't even have the three chapters a day. They don't read. Friends, the point is the person. The reason you love the book is because you love the author of the book. The truth of the book. You see, it's a matter of meeting with Jesus. We often call reading your Bible and praying and have a time like that every day. We often call that devotions actually a good word, I think. Uh, back when I was a teenager, the phrase God and I time became kind of popular. Uh, some refer to their quiet time with God. They're all good phrases. I like that old word devotions because it's being devoted to a person. Loyalty, love to the person, meeting with the person. Now friends, obviously we need to open the book. The mechanics need to be there. But it's got to go far beyond the mechanics to meeting with the person where you're saying, God, open my eyes. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Oh, God, meet with me. You know, God delights to meet with his children. 
And friends, when the word of God speaks to you, you know, it's a passage maybe you've read for years and it's like you've never seen it before. That's, that's, what, that's what it's like when God speaks to you. It's like, whoa. And especially when he applies it to some need in your life right then and there that's going on. And sometimes he'll speak out of some passage where you, you're just shocked that he could have made that out of application out of that passage. I remember one time I was in Leviticus. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought, Lord. And I, I, this was back in the day when I was on a plan. Now, I do it differently now, but where I was doing so many chapters a day. So I'm sure you've never been this, this carnal. But I would, I would, I would kind of look ahead to see how long the chapters were. <laughs> And there was Leviticus 13 and 14, and they're huge. And they're about leprosy. And I thought, oh, man. And I said, Lord, would you just speak to me? And in that passage, when the lepers are made clean, the blood is applied, and then the oil on the blood. (laughs) Cleansing the blood, oil, the spirit. And God began to open up stuff that I've been preaching on for years. Oh, wow. You see, God speaks through this book. But you know, if you ignore the book, or if you go through the ritualistic motions without meeting with the person, you've missed the point. I remember when I was in college, I was... um, taking uh, voice one semester. I don't know why, <laughs> but I was in this voice class, and my dad had come down. He was going to preach not too far away. He said, John, why don't you come and sing a solo? Well, I didn't sing solos. I was okay with choirs and maybe a quartet, but, you know, solos, that wasn't for me. But, you know, I was in this voice class, and I thought, you know, I, I actually have a solo prepared, so in my arrogance, I said, okay, yes, I'll do this. <laughs> I said, I'm not really a soloist, but I said yes. And so I'm there, and, and it was packed out little church, and, and I'm singing away, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, that's not true. So these words are still coming out of my mouth. I'm trying to stand right, breathe right, and do all the voice class stuff. But these words, <laughs> it's not true. And I remember being under deep conviction by the time I finished singing that song. I wanted to be thrilled with Jesus. But to say that was true, no, I couldn't say that. You know, we sing the song, I'd rather have Jesus. Silver or gold. I meet people all the time who'd much rather have the silver and gold. Made obvious by the choices they make in life. There's the song that says, Hallelujah, I have found Him whom my soul so long has craved. And I remember as a child hearing that song, And I remember thinking, I have no idea what that's talking about. Hallelujah, I found him whom my soul... I mean, obviously, it's talking about Jesus, but the reality of it was was distant. And I remember in 2003, God had been working my life for several years leading up to this point, but I was in a a meeting over in Ireland. God had already sent a tremendous moving of his spirit, a true outpouring in the summer of 2000. This is a couple of years later. But we were in a conference, and, and God had blessed, and we had an after meeting. That's just a meeting after the meeting. And the meeting after the meeting went longer than the meeting. I tried that in America. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, God was there. Oh, wow. You know, I've been in a lot of prayer meetings where 10 minutes seemed like two hours. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> but this was one of those prayer meetings where two hours seems like 10 minutes. God's there. And I came out of that, it's like midnight, and I'm uh, supposed to leave uh, 
to fly back to the States. I was going to have to get up in just three hours to make it to the airport in Dublin. And, and, uh, uh, the, but we were going through a book in the conference on We Would See Jesus by Roy Hessian, the uh, same man who wrote the book called The Calvary Road. And the Lord told me, read the next chapter. Well, I'm telling you, you know, you're, you're just coming out of the heavenlies in a prayer meeting like that. And so I opened that little book. It's a chapter called Seeing Jesus as the End. It was a truth I could already spout intellectually, but now I could see it. Seeing Jesus as the end. In other words, seeing him as the goal. You see, yes, he's the power. We usually awaken to that first. But he's not just the power. He's the goal of that power. In other words, Jesus is not just the way to victory, though he is. He is the victory. See, he's not just the way to peace, though he is. He is our peace. He's not just the way to revival. He is the very life of life again. Uh, again, it began to open up to me. Wait a second. I've been looking to Jesus as the way to get to something else as if that's better than Jesus. What a tragedy. And the God began to open my eyes. No, Jesus is the goal himself. For the first time, I felt like I understood what it meant to say, Hallelujah, I found him. Him. Not him to get to something else. Him. Whom my soul so long has craved. I wanted to shout. I mean, I did. But it was in the middle of the night, and we were at a conference center, hotel-like facility, so I didn't. But I wanted to. I was shouting hallelujah on the inside. Now, friends, the person. Let's hasten on, though, or I'll never finish. My bad. Uh, Let's go on now to the second picture here. Service. This is a different picture. Service for Christ. Well, service is a good thing. But the problem here is that the focus is on the service instead of Jesus. And that indicates flesh dependence. It says here in our text, uh, but Martha, verse 40, was cumbered about much serving. Cumbered. What in the world does that mean? She's slicing cucumbers? Could have been. But the word means distracted. Now, who was Martha serving? Jesus. So who was she distracted from? Jesus. Now, wait a second. She's serving Jesus, but her service distracted her from the very Jesus she's serving. You ever been there? I've been there. You know, you're, you're doing all this for Jesus, and you get distracted from the Jesus you're doing all this for. <laughs> and that is... A, uh, it's something we can fall into when we do. It's, a, it's, it's really the problem of flesh dependence. You see, your service for Christ can distract you from fellowship with Christ. The service and other things that are good can distract you from the relationship with the person. The problem is this. Service without the fellowship is dry. It's flesh service. You see, service without the communion is flesh-dependent. It's empty. It's hollow. And that's why people burn out. Flesh-dependence eliminates God-dependence. You say, well, how do you know which one you're in? Well, here in this passage, there's at least four marks of flesh-dependence that you see here with Martha. First of all, she had a wrong concept of God. It says there in verse 40 that she came to Jesus and she said, Lord, dost thou not care? Well, now, wait a second. Did Jesus care? Well, sure he did. Have you ever felt like he didn't care about you? Friends, when we fall into that mode, we're off focus. It's a wrong concept of God because God cares. And there are times when we cannot see. And there are times when we cannot feel. 
And there are times when in the sensory realm it seems like God doesn't care. But reach down deep because faith is not a matter of sight or feeling and recognize, wait a second, God still cares. He knows what he's doing. He hasn't made a mistake. And though we can't see it, there are times we can sob our heart out to God. And that's a good thing. And say, God, I can't see it, I can't feel, but I hang on to you. Because when we get into this mode of God, don't you care? It's a wrong view of God, which means we're not focused on God. If you're focused on God, you have a right view. So anytime we have a wrong concept of God, we're off focus. And it's a mark then of flesh dependence. You see, your focus reveals your dependence. Looking into Jesus, right focus. The author of faith, right dependence. And so what happens here, if we're not looking into him, we get a wrong concept of God. It's a mark then of flesh dependence. Another mark is this critical condescending attitude. She said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister bless her little heart, hath left me to serve alone. Now, isn't it amazing? They, they do this in the southeast big time. You know, you call a person's name and you say, bless their heart, and then you bless them out. <laughs> it's amazing. Now, she has a condescending attitude. Lord, my sister left me to serve. I'm doing all the work around here. And so on. Critical spirit. It's a mark of flesh dependence. My early days of ministry, I'd get with other guys my age, you know, and we'd talk shop, and we'd always get controversial because that's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, and, and we start criticizing. You know, whatever name we brought up or whatever institution, you know, we start lacing them down. And I rather delighted in doing it, thinking that I was taking a stand. Now, please don't misunderstand me. There is a time to take a stand. But there is never a time for arrogance. And here we see this condescending. See, that's pride, attitude. And when we get there, we're in trouble. It's a mark of flesh dependence. A third mark is an agitated spirit. Jesus said, Martha, Martha, thou art careful. That's worried, troubled. And then troubled, that's agitated about many things. See, she's all worried. She's all distressed. She's let legitimate concern become over-concern as if God's no longer around. And so she's agitated. You ever been agitated? <laughs> There's a few honest faces out there. Yeah. <laughs> agitated. Let me just ask your kids. Your parents ever get agitated? Oh, I shouldn't do that. You know, it's, it's fun what evangelists can ask kids. <laughs> agitated. Oh, I've been there. You know, every time we're agitated... We're missing out on our relationship with Jesus. You know, he never gets agitated. And when we're agitated, it's a mark that we're no longer right-focused and we're no longer right-dependent. We're back to flesh dependence. It's just what happens. And there's no joy in that kind of deal. It's like the guy who gets up, tries to get his family out the door to church, and everybody's mad at everybody because everybody wanted the bathroom at the same time. You know how that goes. And, you know, on the way out the door, he kicks the dog and, you know, and shoving everybody in the car and just kind of tense and all of this. And he looks across the street, and here's his neighbor, you know. He's got the trunk of his car or his SUV, and he's putting his fishing poles or golf clubs, whatever, and just whistling away. And the guy going to church says, you know, why don't you come to church and get some joy in your life? <laughs> agitated not only that 
She had a wrong focus, which I've emphasized, but it says right at the end, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Her problem was she was focused about all the things. And whatever you focus on is what you depend on. And that's why we have to focus on the relationship. You see, service is not the main focus. It's not the main thing. It flows from the main thing. Separation is not the main thing. There's a sense where it protects the main thing. The main thing is the relationship. And if you get off that focus, you get in trouble. And so let's come to the evaluation that Jesus makes then of these two pictures between fellowship with Jesus and service for Jesus. Here's his evaluation. It's three statements in verse 42. He says, first of all, but one thing is needful. This is fascinating. He says, but one thing, not two, not three, just one thing, just one thing is needful. Now, friends, this is amazing to me because that's not what we would say. I think we'd sit Martha down and say, Martha, you just need to be balanced. There are times when you sit at Jesus' feet and there are times when you serve. Isn't that what we would say? One of the great proofs of inspiration is that God says things that we'd never think of. That's, we would say, you know, Martha, you just need some balance in your life. But that is not what Jesus said. And he could. He's, both ladies are right there. And he says, Martha, one thing, one thing, just one thing is needful. There's just one essential matter. Why? Because everything else without that vital fellowship with Jesus, is worthless. Jesus said it in John 6.63, the flesh profits nothing. John 15.5, without me ye can do nothing. And so when we ignore him, when we ignore the relationship, when we ignore the fellowship and the communion and the direction and power of him, then we're just left with us and our direction and our power is flesh. And though we go through motions that might look good, and have the form of godliness, which means there is a form. It denies the power thereof. On the other hand, true service will flow from a communing heart. This same lady, Mary, in John 12, breaks an alabaster box of ointment worth a year's wages. And she pours it out in worship and devotion to Jesus. You talk about sacrificial service. It was Mary. A year's wages, just imagine that. And she pours it out to anoint him for his burial and uh, uh, so on. Yes, there'll be service, but now it's flowing from, energized by, led by, empowered by the person of Jesus. You see, everything else is just us. But service that flows from that relationship is now God-dependent, spirit-enabled service. That's a different deal. You see, now it's not you for Christ. It's Christ through you. Now it's not your best for him, as noble as that sounds. Now it's his best in you. You see, the Christian life is a person. His name is Jesus. The Christian life is not a set of doctrines. It's not a set of moral actions. Unsaved moralists do that. The Christian life is a life, a person. His name is Jesus. He is the Christian life himself, which means no one can live the Christian life but Christ. But the good news is, when you get saved, Christ, the Christian life himself, moves into you so that you can live. Yet not you, but Christ in you, the Christian life. 
and when you fellowship with him and you are sitting at his feet, God, whatever you say, you want me to do that? You want me to not do that? Okay, God, whatever you say, I'm trusting you. I'm going to trust your power to obey. Now there'll be all the other aspects, but they're led and empowered by the relationship of the person with the person of Jesus. You see, when we just go through the motions without the communion, we can, we can burn out. We can shipwreck. Friend, there's not a sin out there that I am not capable of committing. Without Jesus, it's a scary deal. I'm on, I'll be honest with you. There are people, there are situations sometimes that come up in life, but by the grace of God, yes, from the human standpoint, I'd like to take them out. I'm just being honest. Sometimes they need to be when it comes to justice. But it's not my right to. See, the relationship with Jesus is what protects us all from being murderers and everything else. And without that relationship, we're in trouble, folks. We get propped up by a convenient, pampered, creature-oriented culture. See, we're not sitting in third world dust and lack of things that make you aware you need God. In America, people have so much, forgive this expression, who needs God? But that's the deception. Friends, you need Him. You've got to have Him. He's the leader. He knows what He's doing. He gave us the instructions. He knows how we work. He's the one where joy comes from and, and power uh, for everything that he's called to do. We have to have him or we fall. Got to have him. Relationship. And then his second statement is, and Mary hath chosen that good part. Do you realize you and I make the choice? Wow. We really do. You heard it said on the video, the reason you don't read your Bible is because you don't want to. But it indicates something far deeper. It means you're ignoring and minimizing and not understanding the value of the relationship. You see, the written word, the window to the living word, that's the deal. And so it's meeting with him. And so you and I make that choice. And yes, it's far more than just reading uh, words on a page. But you've got to read what he says and let him speak or you don't have the relationship throughout the day. And so much more. And then his final statement, which will not be taken away from her. I love this. When the relationship with Jesus is chosen, he protects the choice. Wow. Which shall not be taken away from her. You want Jesus, you can have Jesus. My dad used to say, Jesus wasn't just choosing who would be on his inner circle. There's a sense where they chose it. <laughs> now, obviously, there's a two-sided aspect because God draws us. But the fact is you've got to respond or you miss out and so on. And so when you choose Jesus, it shall not be taken away. Sixty years ago, there was a tremendous revival on the island of Lewis off the northwest coast of Scotland. Duncan Campbell came to preach a three, or excuse me, a ten-day meeting 
and he preached on that island for the next three years. <laughs> That's what I call an extended meeting. Ah, it's glorious. I've met people converted in that revival. The glow of God and radiance of the Spirit on their face. But Duncan Campbell, years before, had fallen in love with Jesus. And when he was in Bible college, hadn't been saved for a couple of years, one day in class, he got stirred by what was happening in this class and this Bible Institute kind of setting. And he raised his hand, he was called upon, and he stood up. And from the sincerity of his heart, empowered by the Spirit, he said, Jesus is my dearest friend. And there was such reality. The Spirit of Jesus was released, if I can say that, into that atmosphere. And that professor, John George Govan, and the other students, without any human leadership, slipped to their knees and they met with God for the next several hours because here was a young man in love with the person. And that's the point, friends. God's enduring word is so that we have a way, we have a window, we have a gateway to have a relationship with the God who spoke our world into existence. Have you chosen the one needful thing? Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.